favor with God and other people. But really, that type of life, you're just, the whole life is spent under the burden of expectation. You can never really get comfortable and rest, and you're continually burdening the people around you. In essence, both of those approaches result in the same way, uh, because they both depend on what we do. It results in a life of weariness and restlessness, always seeking, never finding. But God shows us that there is a third way. Contrary to how how we operate, he says rest can never be found by what we do. But he alone gives it freely by grace, and it's found in a person, Jesus. And he says that only when we come that way and we find rest there can we joyfully and freely approach our life and work. Otherwise, we approach work as a way to find rest, right, in order to earn it. So what is your strategy for finding rest? And how's it working out for you? Right? Is it lasting or is it just temporary and fleeting? Is, is your strategy for finding rest your next vacation? Do you just grind it out every year until that next vacation, knowing when you get back two weeks later you're going to be exhausted again? Right? Or what about your schedule? How does your schedule look? Are you even able to stop and rest? And if not, what does that reveal about you and what you're seeking and where you're seeking rest at? You know, the real question is, how's your heart today? Is it at rest? That's what Jesus is concerned with. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at today, just in two points. You can see it in your worship folder. Missing the point and the Lord of rest. I, like many of you, uh, grew up around orange groves. Uh, I grew up across the street from an orange grove. I still live across the street from an orange grove. And around here, people just stop and they pick one off any old tree, right? Any random grove and they move along their way. Uh, we were outside letting the kids play the other day and a car swerved off the road in front of my house, and I seen this hand just stick up out of the car, pluck an orange off, the the tree just left shaking, and they just like gun it, dirt spins out, kicks back on the road, right? The next day, I kid you not, we're letting the kids play, get their energy out, there's a guy walking down the road uh, with a five-gallon bucket. I'm not kidding, and he walks up to the trees, and it's like he's at the grocery store, he like inspects them, he doesn't like it, he tosses it off, you know, filling up that bucket. That's stressful for me to go to produce and find the right, the right ones. Well, my wife tells me I overanalyze the fruit forever. But, uh, you know, he fills up his five-gallon bucket with oranges, and uh, he just kind of moseys on his way. And we were outside, and my wife said, did you see that? These people just help themselves to oranges. Which, of course, I replied, that's kind of like Polk County Way, babe. That's Central Florida. She grew up in Texas. She don't know. I'm still educating her. That's just how we roll, right? Now, we, we could find fault with that approach to the orange groves around here. I'm sure the owners could find fault with that approach. But you see, back in biblical times, that would have been perfectly fine for most people to do. The first story here tells us that Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and they reached down, and they plucked some grain, and they rubbed it to get like the, the chaff off, and they had a snack. I mean, just like plucking an orange, they're taking the peel off, and you're eating it. The law allowed for this type of thing. The law said that landowners in Israel were not to harvest all the way to the edges of their fields, but they were to leave those unharvested for the widows and orphans and foreigners and sojourners and the poor and hungry to help themselves too in time of need as they passed along their way. It was an act of compassion and mercy to people. It was pretty cool. Well, in this scene, the Pharisees, They're a strict uh, religious sect of Jews. They had a problem with what they saw Jesus' disciples do. And so they called Jesus and his disciples out on what they saw. 
But the problem that they had was not so much that the disciples plucked grain, but that they did it on the Sabbath day. So what was the Sabbath? What's the deal with that? We see the principle of the Sabbath really given in two ways in the Bible. Okay, once we see it in creation, and we also see it uh, in the form of a command. So first, in creation, right? The Sabbath was given by God in creation. He made everything in six days, and every time he finished making something, he turned around, he looked at it, and he's like, he said, that's good work right there. That is very good. I like that. And then on the seventh day, it said he rested, right? Why did he rest? Because he was wore out? He needed a little vacation? That was, man, that was a lot? You got to step away for a minute? No, of course not, right? He was giving us a pattern to follow, right, for our good, letting us know that we can stop. He was weaving a rhythm of work and rest into creation and into us. We were made that way. We operate at our peak capacity when we live in a rhythm of work and rest. God made us that way. That's what Sabbath is about, creation. But Sabbath, the principle is also given in command. When God uh, rescued his people, if you remember Israel, uh, from Egypt, they had been slaves there for 400 years. No days off. Can you imagine? No vacation, no days off for 400 years. And God comes and he rescues them from slavery and he commands them to rest. He said, you're not slaves anymore. You are my children. You're going to stop and rest. You're going to be a people who are set apart. And this was a way to show their faith to everyone around them because remember, This is an agrarian society where their livelihood depended on them working the land. So for them to stop for an entire day was them saying to all the pagan nations around them, look, we can stop working for an entire day because we depend on our God who saved us and he will provide for us. He will take care of us. It's not all about what we do. That was a big deal in this society, right? So Sabbath given in creation and command. So what happened? They, they, they observed the Sabbath faithfully, and they lived happily ever after. No. Unfortunately not. The Old Testament, time and again, it's the most repeated command in the Old Testament. Keep the Sabbath. And they broke the Sabbath. They neglected keeping the Sabbath. We don't need that. They chased after pagan gods. And for that, God judged them and sent them into exile for a long time. So years later, when they came back home from their exile... They said to themselves, basically, hey, we're never going to make that mistake again, (laughs) right? That was miserable. Not only are we going to keep the Sabbath now, I say we add a whole bunch of laws to the Sabbath just to make sure we're not doing any work because we definitely don't want that that to happen again. All the right moves. You know that song by One Republic? That would have been their song, right? All the right moves in all the right places. Never stop and get it all right. They added 39 extra laws to the Sabbath to make sure they were doing all the right moves. This group, the Pharisees, did that. To give some modern examples of what that would look like, my wife spent some time in Israel a few years ago. And on the Sabbath, she said, uh, if you're in an elevator, the elevator literally stops at every single floor whether you want it to or not so that you don't have to press a button because pressing a button would be considered work. That's for real. In the rooms, uh, the lights just come on, off and on automatically, which actually sounds kind of nice. But you you don't even have to flip the switch, right? Because that would be considered work. I'm serious. This is what it looks like on the Sabbath. In certain parts of the city, you can't drive because that would be considered work. And so in taking this strict right, legalistic approach to the Sabbath, they ended up missing the main point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, what God had given to them for rest, became a burden. 
In Mark's account of this same story, Jesus says, uh, he records Jesus saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was meant to be a gift to you. It was never meant to be another thing to do, or a burden, or a way to find favor with God, but for many of them it turned into that. Have you ever tried to learn something new, uh, and in the process of learning the mechanics of how to do that particular thing, uh, you missed the main point of what you were doing? You lost joy in the process because you got so bogged down in the details. Give you an example, I grew up playing baseball, and I pitched in high school, and I got, like, details on how to pitch, like step-by-step mechanics, which was a good thing. I needed that, but the mechanics themselves uh, led me to view those as the end in themselves rather than the means by which to achieve a greater purpose. So I remember that I was, you know, when I started my wind-up, I had to step back like 8 or 12 inches or something. But if I stepped back too much, I'd lose my balance. But if I, if I didn't step back enough, I couldn't get enough momentum to get going, right? And then I had to bring my leg up, uh, but I couldn't bring it up too high because I'd lose my balance. But you had to get it up enough to get some power going. You had to drop your hand at the right moment and get it up high enough. If you drop sidearm, you might end up hurting your shoulder, and then you followed through. And when you followed through, you had to keep your balance because if you fell off to the side, the ball could get hit back at you and hit you. So you had to land in a position to field that ball. So that was pitching. What's the main point of pitching? To throw strikes and get outs. I became a head case. I got so bogged down on the details. If I'm doing this right, do I bring my hands over my head or do I keep my hands in front of my head? The whole time I'm pitching, I'm just thinking about that. And I wasn't throwing strikes, right? I lost the big picture because what ultimately mattered was if I was throwing strikes and getting outs. Those, all those little details and those steps I was, I'm talking about, they were simply a guide or tools in order to get me to achieve a greater goal. And the Pharisees did this with the law. They were so set on getting every little thing right, they got lost along the way, and they ended up missing the main point, the goal of the law, because the law was a guide in how to, one, glorify God and love other people. It was not a way to find approval or rest with God. If you remember, the law was given in the context of grace. God had already rescued them. He had already chosen them, delivered them, said, I love you, you're my people, therefore obey. Right? But they switched that. A couple of New Testament passages show us uh, the, the, the point of the law, the goal of the law. And we see that a wrong approach to God, right, it results in a wrong approach to other people as well. Because if you forget grace, you're no longer humble, and you become like the Pharisees. The point of the law, we see this twice in the New Testament. In Romans 13, Paul says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he starts listing commandments. He says, uh, you shall not commit adultery and don't murder and don't steal and don't covet. And any other commandment, it's, it's summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. That's the goal. Right? They come and ask Jesus. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God, love your neighbor. And he said, all of the other laws, they are summed up in that right there. That's the main point. But the Pharisees, they switched it. They said, obey, obey, and God will accept you. And so their law-keeping became more important than loving people. You see that? They weren't concerned with hungry people on the Sabbath. They weren't concerned with a man with a paralyzed hand on the Sabbath. Law trumped love. Instead of looking for opportunities and how they could love people well, they were watching for others to mess up. If You can see that in verse 7. 
It says they were just watching and waiting to come after people and accuse them. Waiting to find fault and bring charges against people. They're like the law police. My little boys seem to think that if they are not sleeping, nobody should sleep. If you don't know my boys, I got a two and a half month old, I got a two year old and a four year old. Okay, three under the age of five. And that's, I really believe that's their goal. And they have accomplished their goal, right? If, if they're not sleeping, no one else is sleeping. Whether that means they cry or yell or sing or bang or throw. They do all of that, I promise you. They have achieved their goal if no one else is sleeping. The Pharisees are kind of like that. They could not rest because their assurance and their mental peace, it was based on their own works. And that work was never done. Right? The Pharisees, they could never stop and say, ah, we did it. The work is finally completely finished. There there was always more work to do. Right? Always more steps to do. And so, they demanded that same thing out of other people. If I can't rest, I'm not going to let you rest. And that's why they were so intimidated by Jesus, because he was free. He was too loose for them. He had too much rest. Listen, if we can't rest, we will refuse to let other, other people rest. And we see that with the Pharisees, right, life without grace is just exhausting. You can never rest because your meaning and identity and everything you're worth, it depends on what you do and how you measure yourself against other people, and it makes you a miserable person, right? Because if you do things right and you succeed, you'll look down on other people because they don't do it right. You become self-righteous towards those people around you. When you get things wrong, you'll be crushed and angry, Always up and down, always restless. One verse uh, that really sums up how the Pharisees treated others in their lives because of this wrong approach to God, how it made them treat other people. In Matthew 23, Jesus said this about them. He said, they tie up heavy burdens, heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's backs. They, they, they burden down the people around them. They, they, they lay them on people's shoulders. And we could stop right there and ask, You know, where are we doing that? Where are we laying heavy burdens and expectations on the people around us? And what does that reveal about us? Right? Where do you get impatient and just easily frustrated with people? What rules have you made up, like the Pharisees did, that you demand other people live up to, and if they don't live up to them, you're going to let them know about it? Where are you focusing on law-keeping so much that you are missing loving people right around you? Are you demanding towards... Just your spouse and your kids and the people you work with? Are you demanding towards yourself where you are a slave of your own expectations? Right? Which is your approach to God and other people? Are you living as a slave who labors through life in order to earn approval and rest? Is that what what your life looks like? Or are you a child who is at rest and you delight in doing your father's will because your father has been so good to you? That's the difference between religion and No rest. In Christianity, rest. That Pharisee life, right? A life without grace. It's burdensome and restless. But this is why Jesus came. He came to liberate the captives and the oppressed. Listen, he came to liberate us not only from the dominion of sin, but from the burden and the illusion of self-salvation. He came to liberate us, to make us free and give us joy from that burden, those burdens, those weights we carry around of justifying ourselves. Are you living under that heavy burden? Are you putting it on the people around you? There's good news. You can lay that burden down. You can drop the whip that you use on everybody around you if you will just come 
to Jesus. He will set you free from that life of labor and weariness. And even if you're a Christian here today, and you are just weary and you are burdened, there's still more rest for you. Always more rest for us. How? How how can we really be that at rest? Jesus is going to make a startling statement about the Sabbath, and then he's going to actually back it up. Um, So the Lord of rest. What if someone uh, accused the guy of wrongdoing when he was picking the oranges across the street from my house, right? He's filling up that bucket, and they accuse him of wrongdoing. What if I stepped in and I said, I am Lord of the Sabbath? First, I think that would scare the heck out of them. They would, like, run away. You don't mess with that guy, right? But really, they would go, what in the world does that mean? What is, what is he talking about, Right? That's what Jesus says here is even more fascinating. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. That's his main punchline. It just ends. He drops the mic. I'm out, right? I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And it's over. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's a claim to divinity. He's saying, I created the Sabbath. It's mine. Secondly, he's saying, I am authoritative over the Sabbath. It's, it's mine. I call the shots on the Sabbath. But ultimately, he's saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath rest. I am what you really need. And he backs that claim up in the next scene when he heals a man with a paralyzed hand on the Sabbath. That act authenticated the authority of his statement. In Matthew 11, it seems like we see him, we see Jesus intentionally contrast himself with what we heard earlier of how he described the Pharisees. We read it uh, earlier in our worship service. Come to me. Right? He said, they tie up uh, heavy burdens, they place them on people's backs, they weigh people down. But you come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon, upon yourself, learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He contrasts himself with how the Pharisees act. You know, sleep experts, uh, they say that it's not so much the amount of sleep you get, but it's the type of sleep you get that matters most. Now, some of you with young kids may totally disagree with that. And I feel you, okay? I really do, okay? I want, I want more, more, more quantity of sleep. But sleep experts say what, what really what you need is this deep sleep. It's called REM sleep. I think after like 90 minutes of when you go to sleep, you go into that type of sleep. And that's the quality of sleep that you really need. Did you notice that phrase in that verse? Rest for your what? Your souls. Jesus didn't say, come to me, you who are weary, and I'll I'll give you six weeks to eight weeks of vacation, because that's what you really need. No, he said, rest for your souls. He goes straight after the heart, the deeper issue. There is a deeper rest we need, and Jesus says he can give it. If we will come to him, he will lighten our burden, and he will be gentle with us as he does it, and that's good news. How? How how can he do that? How is he our rest? In his last words as he was being crucified on the cross, he said, it is finished. What is finished? The work of salvation was complete right then and there. And it's completely ours by faith. The work of salvation was finished. We can rest in him because on the cross he paid for all of our sins. Are you working to make up for your bad track record and the way you lived in the past? You, 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 man, I made a bunch of mistakes, but if I kind of get my act together for the rest of my life, I've kind of made up for that, right? Are you living under that weight? You can't. You can only dig yourself a deeper hole. It doesn't work like that. But we sing sometimes, Jesus paid it all. 
right? Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's no more work to be done in atoning for sins. It is finished. That is good news. You can be released from carrying around that burden of your past or whatever else it is, of working it off. You can't. But that's good news because you're free. But furthermore, not only that, he lived a perfect life. The life that we have failed at living, and by faith in him, we are credited with his perfect record. And you're like, that's too good to be true. I know, but it is true. That's the gospel. We can't improve upon that. So guess what? There's no more work to be done there either. In either place, it is finished. Right? We've been stamped with divine approval, and we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as an absolute guarantee of God's smile over us that we sang about earlier. There's nothing more to do. The gospel sets you free. That is where you can find rest. An old hymn says, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, and Him alone, gloriously complete. Have you laid down your deadly doing? Good works will kill you if that's what you're trusting in. But if you will just throw yourself on Jesus with your heavy burdens and your messy sins and all that stuff, not only will you find rest, but it will transform the way you live towards other people in your life. Because you'll know he's been so gentle towards me and full of grace. And you can't help but treat other people that way. But what about when we're accused? We're still going to be accused of wrongdoing, right? Can we rest then? Well, one thing I love about this passage is that, uh, you know, Jesus' disciples in the first scene, nor the man with the withered hand in the second scene, ever have to speak. Right? We can rest because we don't have to defend ourselves. Right? The Pharisees accuse the disciples of breaking the law, and who comes to their defense? They don't jump in right there and start justifying themselves, saying, no, 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 look, we're pretty great guys. We go to the synagogue every Sabbath. We are upright and respectable guys. No, no, no. They don't even have the chance because Jesus defends his people. And he is our defender, and he is our defense. Really against three different things. Against Satan, our enemy who accuses us, against others who accuse us, and even against our own selves, even against our own hearts when our own hearts condemn us. Jesus is our defense. And that's why we can rest. He defends us against our enemy, Satan. The book of Revelation says that Satan accuses us day and night, God's people, day and night before God. Right, being an accuser is 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 an, a fault finder is an ugly trait, because it's a trait of Satan. Right, he accuses us, he condemns us, right? He whispers to us how unworthy we are. Earlier in our confession of faith, we read about this quietness of conscience. That's what he does. He comes in and he disturbs our quiet conscience and our calm soul, and he stirs it up. I mean, we have a real enemy who goes after our minds. And some of us greatly struggle with that, leading to different types of depression, right? Even spiritual depression. And we begin to question even if we are children of God. And guess what? A lot of his accusations are true. Right? He accuses me of my sin. He's a failure. He's not the perfect parent, right? He does things wrong. He sins. The reality is, yes, that's true. But Jesus, that's the whole point. He's my defense, Another hymn says, well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. That, that is good news. He can roar all he wants. God knows none because in Jesus, God has dealt with all of our sins and Satan has nothing against us. Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's people? God has justified them. He says, who's going to condemn them? 
Who does he go to? Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who has the right, who he's at the right hand of God now, interceding for us, defending us. Who? Who will accuse God's people? Absolutely no one. They can't. Jesus is our defense. Not only does he defend us against the enemy, but he also defends us against the world and others who accuse us. We don't have to defend ourselves against the accusations of others. Drew mentioned last week that if we're really living in the freedom of the gospel, this heavenly life that we have, we'll probably hear about it from Pharisees. Because that type of freedom and joy, it makes them uncomfortable. And Jesus and the gospels are defense against those accusations. Because we are secure in our Father's love. We don't need anyone else's approval, right? His yes over us is the only yes that matters. That's what the gospel is. God's absolute yes over our lives after he sees everything about us. And only then can we, we're free to love other people well. So he defends us against the enemy. He defends us against others. But he also defends us against our own selves. Does your own heart condemn you? I think this is one of the most powerful ones for many of us who struggle with this. Listen, what I'm, what I'm not saying, there is a difference between being really convicted of sin in our lives and turning back to the Lord. That's repentance. That's a good work of God's Spirit and, that, that, and, and how we grow. That should be continually happening. But lasting feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation are not of the Spirit of God. That is the enemy. It relates back to number one. It's a, it's a, it's a lie. Right? It's a tactic to render us ineffective and to steal our freedom and joy that we have in Christ. And it's unbelief on our part. And when our heart does condemn us, a lot of times we start to talk to ourselves, don't we? And we say things like, man, i got to get better. And I'm a mess. I've got to make up for this. The reality is we do need to talk to ourselves, but not that way. Right? One pastor in the past, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said when we struggle this way, we've got to grab a hold of ourselves and preach the gospel to ourselves. He says you've got to turn on yourself and like grab yourself by the collar and say with the psalmist, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Wake up, hope in God, believe what he said about you. Quote the promises of God to your own self, preach to yourself, right? He's forgiven you, he's adopted you as his beloved child. He's made you righteous. He's seated you in the heavenly places, sealed you with his spirit. He sings over you. He's absolutely pleased with you and Jesus, and he knows, he knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. More than you know about yourself. There's nothing he hasn't seen. There's nothing that's going to take him by surprise. He is fully approved of you. That will never change, and that will bring you rest. Turn on yourself. Preach that good news to yourself. What is your go-to defense when you feel accused? That's what you're trusting in. Do you jump in and immediately say, no, 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 you don't understand. Let me, let me explain that away. There's a reason for that. Or how do you assure yourself of your own worth, right, and approval? Is it, look how important I am. You know, I'm, I'm educated. I'm, I'm a successful businessman. I've been responsible, right? I'm a self-made man or whatever that looks like. I'm a good parent, right? People think highly of me. I've, I've been in church all of my life, and my parents were in church too, and their parents, and it was in a really good denomination, so there you go. That will not bring you rest. All of that depends on what you do, right? It'll never satisfy the deep rest of soul that you need. Only Jesus can give you that. And we cannot rest until we quit defending ourselves. And the good news is, in Jesus, we can lay down our weapons. We don't have to defend ourselves. So finally, practically, right, this deep rest of the soul, it should manifest itself in our lives by 
by living in a rhythm of work and rest. If we can't stop, right? If we don't rest, if you don't have a Sabbath rhythm to your life, it shows that we don't trust God. If you walked into work tomorrow and your boss, right, right when you walked in, he said, you know what? You take the entire day off. That would be, that'd be good for you. You need that. You would be out the door before he stopped speaking, right? Would you not? Some of you are acting self-righteous right now. You're like, I would work. No, you wouldn't. You would leave, right? What's, what's the deal? God tells us to do the same thing. Rest. And yet we say, oh, no, 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 I, I, I'm good. I'll take it from here. I think I know what I need, and, you know, I don't want things to fall out of sorts. It's unbelief, right? A true indicator of where we are at in our relationship with God uh, is found in our ability to keep the Sabbath, to stop, be still, trust God, and rest in him. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but we should still have disciplines in our lives to help cultivate that type of rest, right? There's not a bunch of rules we necessarily follow, but we should have disciplines to cultivate that type of rest to massage this deeper rest into our hearts. And so just a couple things and I'm done. One is simply take time off and enjoy God and his good gifts that he's given you. Stop working, right? Put your computer down at night. My wife holds me accountable to that because I feel like I can't stop working. Stopping working is an act of faith. And you know what it says? God keeps the world going, not me. I am not God. Right? I am not the Christ. I can stop. And, and he will, he, he, Psalm 121, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Right? You, we wake up into that good news that God's already working. So rest. Secondly, find that rhythm daily. You need that type of rhythm. Mo- weekly, you need that type of rhythm. And even annually. Right? Find your rhythm of work and rest and know that it's probably not going to look exactly like the guy sitting next to you. But we all need those disciplines. And finally, we have to put ourselves in the way of the Lord of the Sabbath. Are you putting yourself in the way of the Lord of the Sabbath? And what I mean by that is, He has given us gifts to cultivate that rest. He has given us gifts, His Word. Are you reading your Bible? Right? Are you coming to the table and experiencing the sacraments? Right? Or do you spend time in prayer? Is corporate worship a priority for you? Being here. Are you living in community with other Christians? All of those things are intentionally putting yourself in the way of the Lord of the Sabbath. Are you doing those things? We cannot neglect those things and continue to expect that we are going to feel that deep rest of the soul that we are given in Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage us to do that. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest. I want us to, to begin that work even now. That may look like repenting of your perfectionism. Being able to stop. Your workaholism. Our unbelief that God will take care of us even if we stop. And then the way we treat others, let's drop that legalism and that moral-based, you know, beating up the people around us and accusing others in our lives. And just fall at Jesus' feet. You ever seen a marathon runner when they cross the finish line? Just collapse. Just fall at his feet because he said, if you will come to me like that, I will give you rest for your souls. This is good news. Let's seek him this morning. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, uh, 
we are weary, tired people. Um, Some of us may not feel that way, but I pray that you would give us the grace to see how busy our own hearts really are and how restless our hearts can be. And Father, I pray that you would come and speak peace to our hearts this morning. Father, fix our eyes on the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus. God, expose our idols, right? Where we're seeking to find rest in all of these other things, but they never satisfy us. They always fall short. God, your grace is amazing. Thank you that it is finished. Uh, Help our unbelief this morning. Speak peace to our uh, tired, messy hearts and uh, raise us up and give us joy and freedom in the life you have guaranteed to us in Jesus Christ. And in your name we pray, amen. Well, amen. Uh, in John chapter 6, a guy comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what's the real work we need to be doing? What's the work of God we need to be doing, Jesus? And Jesus said, believe. Believe in the Son. And so that's true for us. To believe the gospel, in order to do that, we have to do what our call to worship said, what the psalmist did there. So when we wake up anxious and we feel the need to prove ourselves and to work, 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 the psalmist said, return, O my soul, to your rest For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. That is good news. And the promise of this benediction is that the Spirit is with us as we do that work to give us rest. And as that rest continues to be fleeting, continue to seek Him. So we receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you His peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.